back with you another week of college basketball as we are winding down this season, which is hard to believe. And as we know, as it's getting closer and closer to Selection Sunday, it's all about bracketology. And what better way to have this episode and talking about bracketology? Let's bring in Charlie Cream, who is the resident bracketologist on the women's side for ESPN. Charlie, can't thank you enough for joining Steffi and I here on the podcast. Uh, the question, though, is, are you getting any sleep at all? <laughs> well, no. Uh, it, it, the, the short answer is no. There, there's, there are moments, there are, are times, but I, I tell you, I fall asleep sitting in this very chair that I'm sitting in now in my office at home more often than I actually initially fall asleep in any sort of bed or prone situation. So uh, probably not best for my health, but this, this time of year never is. Bracketology is the most fun thing I do. It also might be the thing that is taking years off my life. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> yes, I can understand that. It's that dichotomy of about trying to the good and the bad of bracketology from your standpoint. But I do want to rewind just a little bit. And obviously you and Joe Lenardi have a unique connection going way back and then how it's progressed that Joe's on the men's side, you're on the women's side. But just explain the love that you have for college basketball and how it all came about that you're now this data analytics guy trying to predict who's going to be in the women's tournament. Well, how far do you want to go back? Do you want to go back to when I was a, a little kid uh, sitting across the yes. in my living room, making my own brackets on big pieces of cardboard and wow. uh, construction paper and then hanging them up on the, the closet door and filling them out. Uh, so it goes back that far in terms of the, uh, the affinity for brackets clearly had no idea that that was going to turn into or evolve into this, but uh, to, to for fast forward from there a little bit and how it kind of accelerated, it was my relationship with Joe. I, I had moved to Philadelphia and kind of starting my professional life. And I was introduced to him through uh, a, a mutual connection that I had had just prior to that as I kind of my first job really uh, back in upstate New York. So I moved to Philly, met Joe. He was the editor of Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. And, and a couple of years into us working together on that, uh, he decided that it would be cool to do a, a supplement to the preseason book, which is the preseason book was about 350 pages of nothing but hardcore text, not a picture in the thing outside of the And the, so, but the, this, <laughs> and then this is where, this is this is a phrase I hate to say because it dates me and it, it, it makes people understand how old I am. This was before the internet. So in order to do this preseason uh, or pre-tournament guide that we wanted to put out, it had to come out in hard, co hard copy just like the preseason guide. So it, if, as you can imagine, it creates a quick turnaround. Men's games start on Thursday. The selection shows on Sunday. you got to get this thing printed and then sent out to people by really by Tuesday for it to make it were something they could actually use and digest. So there was the time crunch. Well, one year, obviously we had to pre-write a lot of teams. One year we got burned. Joe didn't have any inside and was not connected at all. We're just sitting there at his little annex office at St. Joe's University watching the selection show. And then lo and behold, Santa Clara and Manhattan were both chosen as at-large teams. We but we turned and we looked at each other, swallowed really hard, and said, "Oh bleep!" And he's like, "Okay, you take Santa Clara, I'll take Manhattan, 
<laughs> no. So I ran downstairs and I started <laughs> back then. It was this thing called fax back. So you go to a, a fax machine. So some people listening are going, what is he talking about? What is a fax machine? But you dialed up a number on the fax machine and it spit back a bunch of stats and, and, and all the, you know, the pregame notes and things like that. So I'm doing that for Santa Clara. He's doing that for Manhattan. We, we managed to get these teams written just in time, get them into the printer and boom, we get it out on time. We take a big deep breath. He looks at me and says, that can never happen again. I got to figure this thing out. So he starts to study the process really in depth, really deeply, and becomes to understand it. So he's projecting ahead so we're not missing out on teams. Well, uh, fast forward to the launch of the internet. He decides to take this knowledge that he has and create his own website. Um, at this point, I think I had moved away from Philadelphia. I had taken a job in television uh, in Bangor, Maine, but I was still working with Joe on the side doing uh, team previews and things like that. Still writing for Blue Ribbon. Uh, but now he was deeply immersed in, and he created the term bracketology and had a website called bracketology.net. And then ESPN got wind of it a, couple, a year or so after that, really liked the idea bought out his website, hired him, boom. Now there's a thing called Bracketology on ESPN.com. Well, fast forward maybe another, I don't know, two years. The women's side of ESPN.com was trying to expand and wanted to do more content. Well, they called out, called to Joe and said, hey, could you do women's Bracketology too? And he said, well, no. However, <laughs> I've got a guy. And I was the guy, you know, I, I was, you know, when people say I've got a guy, well, I, I actually was one. Yes, uh, you were. <laughs> uh, I, and I just had finished my, my run as a, as a, as a local sports anchor in Bangor, Maine, extensively covering the university of Maine women's basketball team who, who in the coach there, this was a really good team at, at that level, at that kind of that mid-major America East level. Joanne Palumbo McCauley was the coach. She, that's how she was known back then. Joanne coach Palumbo P. McCauley went out to State, took a team to a championship game, went on to Duke, obviously, uh, is retired now, but clearly a, a comer in the coaching game. So I was involved with a program that had a, a you know, what was soon to be a big time coach. And um, so I got really involved in women's basketball during that time. So I, I said, sure, I'm, I love my brackets. I love my hoops. Let's do this. I didn't, at the time, I, I, I can't say that I was the foremost expert on women's basketball but i knew the game i was certainly a fan i always watched in the postseason always watched those tennis yukon games whenever we could get them on national tv back then and but i dove right in and immersed myself in it and uh and it's it's been 20 years now if you can believe that and it's really evolved when i first started it was we would do it a little bit in february and and Nobody, even at ESPN, really knew who I was. Um, it was throwing the stuff up on .com. And, and then my, my numbers started to show that I kind of knew what I was doing. And lo and behold, people started to take notice. And it's grown, it's grown, it's grown. Because if we were, if, if this was 15 years ago, you wouldn't even be talking to me because you barely would have ever heard of me. <laughs> it was kind of cool. <laughs> I, I kind of, I, frankly, the bracketology thing has ridden the wave of the growth of the of the sport of women's basketball yeah. or, you know, I guess some people have said, well, you've helped contribute to that with the bracketology. I don't know about that, but the game has grown a lot and that certainly has helped elevate what I do because you get more fans of the sport, you get more people watching, then you obviously get more people paying attention to things like bracketology. 
Well, well, Charlie, I want to say thank you because you have brought more coverage and, you know, the, the seriousness with which you're able to do your job and, and how effective you are and you watch so much film. And I have to also credit ESPN because we used to hear from you in February, but yeah. now we get to see you more often and we've got more coverage. You're out there way more. And so I think that, you know, credit ESPN because they've given you more time to get out there and, and our game is growing. Is it cool to see how it isn't just something like on the side? I mean, you're in this, you're doing this and you, you know what I mean? Like you have those opportunities now and it's, it's awesome to watch. It's a blast. It, it's, I, I love the game so much. Uh, yeah. I watch way more than, although, although you, if you read Twitter, nobody thinks I watch any games at all. <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that. Cream, cream clearly doesn't watch. Meanwhile, while I'm seeing those tweets, I'm on my laptop watching uh, Long Beach State and Cal State Fullerton at midnight. So I, I, you know, just anybody who follows me on Twitter who's listening to this, no, I, you can disagree with me hundred times a day, but just know I am watching games, a lot of games, and I love watching games. Yeah, you're putting in the work. There's no question from that standpoint. <laughs> And so, Charlie, I'm always fascinated because I am a data guy. I love stats. And so I I love, you know, with the the RPI, then the net, you know, all all of these uh, analytics that can be used in trying to measure teams. From your perspective, though, how much are you balancing, you know, the, the analytics and everything that goes into it versus what your eyeballs are telling you and the eye test, so to speak? Yeah. And sometimes they tell you the same thing. Um and sometimes they don't. It's it, it's, but you so you have to you have to obviously know basketball, and you've got to kind of know how a little bit historically how the analytics are applied, and they and that changes the committees change so people's viewpoints on those analytics change. And bracketology really is me trying to guess what ten or now twelve people are going to do, and I don't know these people. I don't know their their likes or dislikes. What how they see the game. So it's you go a little bit on on the history of how whether the RPI or the net was applied, how they apply the top twenty five wins, top fifty wins, apply what that you you what you're seeing and what you think they should be seeing or what they could be seeing. So it, it's there's no set ma- magic formula. Um, I th- and I think that's part of what frustrates coaches. If I, whenever I talk to coaches, w- one of the one of the first questions that they ever have for me is, well, what is really important? And, and they want two or three things and that's it. And it just, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of nuance to it. There's some level of subjectivity, but there needs to be because not everybody sees the game or, or things in general the same way. And, and that's kind of how this works. So it's a, it's kind of trying to figure out every year how to meld those two things you mentioned, Rich. It's, you know, it's what are your eyes telling you versus, what the data says. And it's most of the time it kind of tells you the same thing, but then you got to, well, but here's a situation this year where we, something we've never seen, right? I, I was just doing this kind of breakdown in the history of it the other night. Oregon is 14 and 13 on a seven game losing streak. And your eyes tell you, this team's not very good anymore. They're still in the twenties in the net. True. It's crazy. Which, you know, so you get these, these, analytic formulas whether it was the rpa the rpi had some usually one once a year would have one glaring anomaly 
and the net does too. These things aren't perfect. The net is better than the RPI because it incorporates more things. But this year, the RPI would actually be more telling of what Oregon actually is than the net is. Because the net in the 20s, we've never seen a team with a record this close to 500 that's that high in, in the major analytic that's being used. So I, I went back through all the RPI and, and we were some teams that were close to that, but not, not like this. And those two, and those two teams in particular, both Rutgers teams in the in 2010, 2011, both actually made the tournament. But at this point, if this tournament started today, I can't see any justification for Oregon making the tournament. And, and so those are the things you're kind of doing is sort of taking that. Wow. I watched that game against Washington the other day and whoo, not good. And, and you're looking at the number going, but a team in the twenties always makes the tournament in this, the, the history it just has never happened. So we're, I think we're going to have, I think it's going to happen this year though. Interesting. I, I wanted to ask you just speaking of, you know, um, just the numbers and I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but LSU being number four in the net, but their net non-conference strength of schedule, 321. You know, think about four in the net, but that net non-conference strength of schedule. That, I was reading those off to Rich, and he's like, geez, you know, that is, can they finally get to a one seed? Or is that that net non-conference strength of schedule just absolutely going to hound them? Well, there's another one, right? That's another, I have a almost nightly, wrestling match figuratively of course with lsu um <laughs> that, that wouldn't be good for anybody if it was literal uh, but I, I don't because we haven't seen this either a team that profiles that well the rpi again going back to if the old metrics were used lsu would be now more around 20 and you mm-hmm. wouldn't so you'd look at them like ah they're probably not a number one seed but they're a major conference team with only one loss Who's who, yeah played a terrible schedule, but has been dominant. And, and and in another year, I don't think they would even have really that. They'd be a high seed, but I don't think they have a shot at a number one seed. But I have them as a number one seed now. After That's we right. saw Iowa go down, we saw UConn go down. Yeah. So it's like it's almost like well, someone's got to be that other number one seed. And yeah, and then you get well, Maryland should be well. Maryland profiles really well. They've got a lot of top fifty wins, top twenty five wins. But the the committee spoke a couple weeks ago with the top 16 reveal and Maryland was on the three line. They were the best three. So they were number nine overall and LSU was five overall. So that that's another thing that I have to kind of, now that we do these top 16 reveals, it gives us a little window into what the committee might be thinking. Now the committee will say, well, one reveal has nothing to do with the next reveal, which has nothing to do with actually what happens on selection Sunday. But it, 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 it is a big leap historically in these reveals for a team to go from ninth overall to fourth overall when last night was only was the, the, the Iowa game was their really their biggest only big win in between. They had a couple other wins. They beat Illinois. And Illinois is a good team and a tournament level team. But the, the, it's the Iowa game that has everybody popping their eyes like, wow, they just beat another another top 10 team and thrashed them so the lsu that dilemma now with with those losses who's going to be that fourth number one seed it's 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 almost like lsu backed into it and we'll see what the committee has to say as we go forward 
But I, I, the way I look at it is it had to be LSU. But as I'm doing it, I'm doing it reluctantly going, yeah, that 321 is – it feels like it's tattooed on my back. It hurts. Like, wow, they didn't really – and when people you know, spout off, well, I didn't play anybody and anybody could win that with that kind of schedule. I can't, I can't really disagree too awfully much, but it in in well one loss now, but back back at the point where they did the first reveal, that that zero in the loss column does carry some weight. I know if you're not playing great teams, it doesn't carry as much weight, but beating everybody on your schedule still has to mean something, right? At least it does to me. Yes. Um. So. Well, I, Kind of, we'll see. This is these are one of these things that has my stomach in knots because the the one thing I think I bring to the table is I really don't have a dog in the fight. Um, I I didn't I, I didn't play. Uh, my alma mater is in the Atlantic Ten, and the women's program right now is not even cl- close to the NCAA tournament, St. Bonaventure. So I don't. I'm not. I, I'm not riding any bandwagon. I have really no agenda except one. I like to be right. Yes, <laughs> so, because it helps job security for one. Number two, I got an yes. ego. So when I put LSU on the on the at the fourth overall spot on that one line, I want the committee to agree with me because I want to be right. If I'm wrong, and look, the sun's still going to come up tomorrow, but I still like to be right. So that's my agenda. So now I get all, all my stomach in knots, going, "Are they going to do it? Are they going to agree with me?" Uh, and that's what I hope for. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Charlie, that that pride that you talked about, yes, that can obviously rear its ugly head. But how much has the reveals? Or, or do they help you at all now that you get a little bit of a glimpse as far as what the committee is thinking as you're going through the season? Where before the reveals, I mean, you didn't know until Selection Sunday, and then it was revealed. So does that help you in terms of you know your uh, predictions? It does. I have a a. a kind of a love-hate relationship with the reveals. I to your point, Rich, it does it gives me a window into what that particular committee might be thinking. We get a chance to ask them questions during this during this time of the reveal and they will give us and usually it's me asking a lot of questions and it's trying to find out, well you did this, what was it based on? You did this, what was the conversation like in the room? To give me some idea of how the committee thinks. So yes, it does help because now I can kind of reset, okay, this is this is my job to try to figure out what they're going to do. Now I've got a little bit of a picture of of at least the path that they seem to be taking. The flip side is I kind of feel like to some degree it's getting what could be on the test early. And it's a little bit of cheating. And I don't I, I you know I'd like to part of me is like again, the ego thing, let's just go into it without knowing anything and let me be the only source that people have on what they think or what I think is going to happen. So when they started doing them, I thought, Oh, okay, good. But now, now people are kind of already going to know and to on some level what they're thinking and and they can't rely. They're not going to rely entirely on me, but it's, but it's worked out because it still gives us conversation. And I disagree with the committee and Gosh, one day I'm just hoping that they just turn the whole thing over to me anyway, and just make it make, make the committee of one the black house <laughs> king. There's and I, there goes I, that I, ego once again. Not gonna happen. Yes, <laughs> not gonna happen. But it would be cool, right? One year, just yeah, let's, let's yes. experiment with it. Let's let cream do it. 
but in all serious, uh, Charlie, I do have that question. Do you see any value where there could be a situation where they the committee does bring in somebody that has done this for years and help them because this committee is made up of people, even on the men's side, it's not their it's not their job to watch all these games, to understand and uh, you know really be able to dive into that much detail to pick these teams. Is there any value that have you or Joe part of the committees? Oh, well, if you ask Joe or I, 100%, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the NCAA, they're like, yeah, well, no, it's funny. They're media members. They're they're just, you know, this exercise is great for the game and it's fun discussion. And um, but no, we got it. I, I, th- I think that's probably going to be, you know, more would be the answer. Now, I have to believe that they're kind of paying attention to what Joe and I are doing. And I mean, Joe is really good at this, and he's he's really connected. And um, I, I have I have a feeling that they must pay it some attention. And one year, a committee member actually called me. To ask me what I thought about certain teams. So it's, it, it, it does happen. I, I don't think I'm getting a seat in that room anytime soon. And the, and, and they, the reason they have a committee is that, you know, ostensibly these, these are the folks that are, are watching a lot of games too. They're just dividing them up. Whereas, you know, I got to try to tackle that all by myself. They are assigned conferences and this, and then they kind of report back and then they get on these conference calls these regional conference calls where there's there's some coaches sprinkled in, sports information directors sprinkled in, and they talk to them. So they're getting information. Sometimes they get more information. Even, you know, I watch a lot of games, but sometimes they're getting more information that way about uh, nuances, like, you know, players' health. Um, when are they coming back? When are they, if, you know, somebody who's out? You know, sometimes I'm learning about a player being out as I'm tuning in, like, oh, boy, well, that's a, you know, that might change things. or Or trying to find out what that player's, availability will be going forward. I don't have, I don't really don't have as much insight on that as maybe some of these, some of the coaches within these calls could have to provide that information. So, um, so there's, there's that advantage too, but yeah, if if they want to, if they want to offer me a chair, I'm, uh, you're ready. I'm I'm, I'm rolling it in and I'm sitting down. I'm I'm having as many ice cream bars during those few days as they can possibly eat while I help them pick the teams. What's your favorite ice cream bar? Well, is there a, is there a bad one? Uh, That's a great answer. No. <laughs> Probably not. You, you, you throw anything at me, and uh, there's a pretty good chance I'm ripping open that wrapper. Charlie, I wanted to ask you a question because if you talk to any of the, any coaches, mainly at the Power Fives, you know everybody's conference is the best conference, right? But when you're evaluating how many teams get in from a conference versus maybe the quality of the seeds that get in. How do you determine, you know, I I know the competitiveness of the ACC this year, the quality of the big 10, you could say you've got two number two potential number one seeds out of the sec. Some say it's down or whatever, but when you're looking at it, once the bracket comes out, how do you, how do you determine who maybe has had the strongest conference based on kind of what I just said? Yeah, that's a great question. um, Because, you could say there's a lot of different ways you could go with this this year. Yeah. I think for the longest time, even going back to the preseason, I think most people said, I know I did. And a couple of my colleagues at com said that the ACC was the best because it going to be the most competitive because we didn't really know who was going to win. And about five different teams could win. I think we each picked a different team to win. And, and, and they've, 
kind of lived up to that, but some of those really good teams have lost to teams toward the bottom of the conference. Like, well, how good really are they? And right now, there's no ACC teams on the one or the two line. So is it that great? However, there's a whole bunch smushed from three to six. They think that the Big Ten, little less balance, um, because you know, because you can you kind of watch games on the respective networks of these leagues, and it's that league is is both of it's the best, it's the best, the best. I'm like watching the 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 Iowa Maryland game, and oh, the Big Ten is, and believe me, the Big Ten's great. It's got Indiana the one line, it's got Iowa that was knocking on the door. Now it's got Maryland. Ohio State was a one seed at one point, so that's four amazing teams. But the bottom of that league, the four to five teams at the bottom are basically automatic wins. Yeah, it's not so it's not balanced at all. It's not balanced yeah. at all. But it's really good at the top. And they're going to end up having four teams in the they're gonna have they're gonna have four teams in the top 16, probably. And then they then they take the Pac 12, very a little more balance. But but definitely, well, actually, a lot more balance now. You think about it. Cal's a much better team now. Washington's a lot better team. If Arizona State wasn't around, then there would be there wouldn't be a night where you could take basically you could take a night off in the Pac-12. Um, but they're not going to have outside of Stanford. They're not, and well, Utah. Utah's going to be a, probably going to be a two, but they're not going to have they're they're going to have some other fringe top sixteen teams, but maybe not quite to that the, the level that the Big Ten is right at the top. Uh, and then you got the SEC, which normally is has all of those things, right? They've got the the best team in in the last few years, South Carolina. You've got all this depth, and you've got a bunch of teams vying for the top sixteen, and you've got a bunch of teams vying for the tournament and, and as a whole. Well, this year it's obviously very weighted: South Carolina, then LSU, then Tennessee, then Ole Miss, but then you start getting into the like, teams that you know there's no there's not the depth yeah. number one even though they're probably still going to get seven maybe eight teams in the tournament but a lot of them are going to be eight to 11 seeds which you don't really see and when when programs like kentucky and texas a&m that two years ago were i mean i mean what it was two years ago a&m was vying for a number one seed they were a top 16 team and they i think they, and they won the sec or they tied south carolina for the sec regular season championship Last year, Kentucky won the SEC tournament. Yeah. They had the number one pick in the WNBA draft, and now they're 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 easy wins for anybody at the top of the league. So it's there's been a quick shift in the SEC, but again, there's there's still depth in you know. So how do you measure all that? Um, I I guess <laughs> that's a really roundabout way of trying to answer your questions. Basically, I just presented all the facts and gave you no real conclusion there, Steph. <laughs> so sorry, but I'm going to say probably this year. Um, if even though it's fifth in the it, it, this is the other thing too. You look at the net. The Big Ten is fifth in the net behind the SEC, behind the Pac-12. But but boy, those T. I I really do think those, especially Indiana, Iowa, and Maryland are all really good. Yeah, I I just think the that top half of the Big Ten. You can even throw Michigan in in there, but just the being able to compete once they get to the NCAA tournament, I think they have yeah. more quality teams now i kind of want historically they haven't been able even when they've had great teams historically the big 10 hasn't been able to yeah so to maybe to be determined (laughs) okay i'll take it i I know it's kind of a lot because everybody says their conference is the best but it is kind of like well how do you how do you measure that once you get to the tournament because who wins once you actually get in you can get nine teams in right exactly that's pretty good right and that's 
and, 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 and is the tournament in itself, should it be the only measurement? Because sometimes the tournament results are as much about how teams are matched up that, you know, like, and it's, I, I, I tell this to my friends all the time. Though this team's great, as like, well, let's see the matchup first because matchups are going to determine how this goes. Iowa last year, for instance, Creighton was just a was a bad matchup for them in the second round because they were they were what they were what Iowa does to some degree with the spreading of the floor and the shooting the threes, but with maybe even more experience and more depth, and they happen to be making a bunch of shots that day. Boom, they go out. If Iowa plays another team on that seed line. We could be looking at Iowa pushing for the Final Four. They that was the one game they couldn't they just couldn't get through because of the matchup. So, it, it, but I don't I don't think that that should have. I mean, it does take away from Iowa's season. I know they were all disappointed, but Iowa was still really good last year. And I guess you know the emphasis on the tournament kind of kind of puts a lot of that stuff in a bad light. But that that season shouldn't be forgotten how good it was. But it kind of it kind of is. So I guess maybe you're right. Maybe we maybe we have to measure it by. How many teams get in, where they're seated, and then more importantly, what do they do when yeah. they get there? Well, let, let's talk Iowa because you picked Caitlin Clark right now for your player of the year. Um, and and I think that that is – it's hard to argue against Caitlin Clark being player of the year with what she's had. I, I, I want to pivot for a second, and I want to bring you to the SEC where I'm kind of camped out in, and that's the league that I'm primarily covering. We got a, we got a battle – I think for player of the year in our league between Leah Boston and Angel Reese, Leah Boston, the resident of the league. She is the reigning national player of the year. She is on the best team. She's not needed as much Angel Reese. I don't know where LSU would be without her and with the numbers that she's put up. So I, I was put in the position of who would I put as my player of the year? And I said, Leah Boston is the best post player. Angel Reese has had the better year. So I put her as my player of the year. What say you? I think that's a very reasonable argument. Now, I would still vote for Boston okay. just because I think end of the day, if you're asking me, we're lining up on the playground and I got to pick somebody to start. First of all, who who would be foolish enough to give me the first pick? But if they did, <laughs> I would I would take Boston. And I think so that I, I think that's how I an- answer the question for myself. But, but everything you said is spot on. Reese has had the better year. But then you start to get the nuance of, well, did she put up a lot of those numbers against against inferior competition? Um, I, I I actually <laughs> it's funny you bring this up. Going back to the whole Twitter thing, sometimes I think I just got to stay off that. You got to stay that, off Twitter, Twitter, Charlie. Yes, I, I I simply answered a question that somebody had about our uh, Alexa Volpel and myself picked our our five All Americans to this point in the season a couple weeks ago. And we had to pick three post players and two guards. So it, it kind of limited us a little bit. I picked Reese and I picked Boston and as two of my players. I the the UConn fans came out in uh with pitchforks because Edwards, Aliyah Edwards was not there to be mentioned. Now, I think I'm putting on solid ground in saying that Reese, Boston, Cameron Brink, who's my my third front court player, even Mackenzie Holmes are having better years. However, the the idea that I picked Reese was thrown in my face based on the schedule that she played. Oh, make so my one of my counterpoints was, well, even if you look at her numbers just in SEC games, and I'll, I'll grant you this isn't this isn't your uncle's SEC necessarily, 
but it's still a really good league. It's still got, you know, seven, eight tournament quality teams in it. Her number, she's still putting up, like, it was like 24 and 14 in the SEC, just in SEC games alone, something like that. So, you know, that's hard to dismiss. And of course that, but it was, but you know, by, by the Twitter folks, it was completely dismissed, but it was, it was simply my point in saying, you can't just say it was only the schedule that allowed in the non-conference allowed Risa to put up these big numbers. Cause she's doing it against really, really quality competition in the sec as well. Uh, but like I said, I, I, my vote would be Boston just cause I think at the end of the day, she's a better player. And if I was on the playground, I'd, I'd pick her first. Um, but I don't think you, I don't think you can go wrong. I, yeah. I, like I said, I, they're, in, they're both, they were both in my top five. Yeah. You can't, you can't go wrong, Charlie. And I think in, in Angel Reese's defense, she did not put on, she did not have control over the schedule. Her job was to go out there and play her best basketball. And I think she's done that. I think, you know, Jordan didn't win MVP every year when he was in the league. Leah Boston is the best player. Yeah. But I think, you know, just, um, just watching Angel, like what she's been able to do this year, I was like, you know, we got to we got to give it to her. I, I'm fine with Boston winning. You know, it's one A and one B to me. But I think in terms of national player, Caitlin Clark. I mean, she, I know she had 18 last night against uh, Maryland, but that, that's a slow night for her. You know, we're we're so <laughs> used to you know the the 30 pieces and the triple doubles from Caitlin Clark. I think she might now be a lock for national player of the year. I, 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 that's what I said. I said, look, I don't think it's really close to be honest that my, my colleagues hedged a bit and said, well, it's still, it's still pretty close with Boston. And and, and Reese kind of came up peripherally in the conversation, but I don't think it's, honestly, I don't think it's close. Now last, the the Maryland game last night doesn't do me for my argument any favors because yes, she had 18, but if you, you know, obviously people watch that game, Maryland shut her down pretty, pretty well. But my, my, my biggest point to why it should have been Clark is that, Prior to that, and I I always played a really good schedule. Prior to that, her worst game against a ranked team was 19-8-8 against Iowa State. Her worst game. So (laughs) Almost a triple-double. I guess the Maryland game now qualifies as the worst game against a ranked team. I mean, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a great performance, but to your point, Steph, she still managed to find her way to 18 points. Whereas... When we look at Caitlin Crane and go, oh, she scored 18. Eh, that was garbage. Any other player in the country, maybe outside of one or two, scores 18 in a game. It's we're throwing a party. Yeah. Yes. So I mean the bar the has bar been raised to a certain good. level. Yeah. Yeah. It has definitely been raised for a certain level. All right, Charlie, wrapping up, I do have to know what is your selection Sunday like? It's changed over the years because now they now I'm on the show, so they've brought me in over the last few years. They've put me on the show, and it, and I've had different sort of roles with that. One year, uh, I live in Las Vegas. One year, they put me in the studio uh, here in Las Vegas, and just kind of had just kind of talked back to me, and I interviewed the the chair of the committee. Uh, last year, I was there in studio uh, in Bristol. A few years ago, I did the same thing. It used to be where I was, just in the very place I'm at now, in my home office, biting my nails, grinding my teeth, waiting for that selection to come out to, again, see how well I did, uh, to see if, if once again, I earned my keep. If, if all these things I've been talking about here had any validity whatsoever. So, Because that's the day. That's the day that puts the stamp on it. So I guess wherever I'm at, 
the, the, those feelings are still there. So internally, it's been very consistent for 20 years. Oh, gosh, this is the day. I, you know, I wake up in the morning in a cold sweat. But, uh, but for instance, this year, uh, I'll be in Bristol on the show. So there's, there's the kind of the, the prep work that goes into any TV show, uh, trying to figure out the talking points ahead of time a little bit so we have a, a path. Where are they going to use me? Am I going to interview the chair? I've, I've, I've done that a few times. One year I was even in Indianapolis with the, the selection committee, not with them, with them. They locked the door, bolted it shut, and took covered up the peephole. So I, I, you know, so I, I couldn't get a look at anything early. But I was there, and then afterwards I, I did some interviews and things like that. Um, so I may, I may do that. But the, 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 the day is just – it's honestly, it's a bunch of anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> if I might be honest, because I, like I said, I want to, I want to be, I want to get it right. And I, I want to know that what I did in providing fans information all year long made sense, was accurate, that I wasn't just shooting from the hip. And, 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 and sometimes I, I do get a couple of things, quote unquote, wrong that I vehemently disagree with. And, and then go back to that point we we're talking about earlier is if, man, if they just made me king for the day. This tournament <laughs> bracket would look a lot better than it does. But for the most part, I think the committees of the last few years have gotten, I don't know if they've improved, if they've gotten better, if they've, maybe if they've listened to me a little bit, I don't know, but they're not, we're more in lock. We've been more in lockstep and I haven't had these big wild, there's usually a team or, or so that I, that I miss on that I, maybe I disagree with, or maybe I look at it and go, well, I had them, you know, I had them 60, I had them 68th, the committee had them 69th. Eh. I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw a fit over that, but sometimes a team might be a five seed that I had an eight seed. And I'll go, what, what that, doesn't <laughs> do that often, but when it does, then I have an issue or I have to look at myself and say, what were you looking at? So there's some self-reflection that goes on post bracket reveal as well. So, uh, so Rich, to answer your question, it's been a mixed bag of things. I know it used to be when I would finish, if I was before I started doing the TV part, when I would finish, like I would take a huge sigh of relief after the selection show ended. I'd have to write, I'd have to write something usually as a kind of a, a follow-up recap, but I'd usually go, you know, crack open a beer and, <laughs> and say, Oh yeah. Job well done. <laughs> but but my job now is is beyond bracketology. So I can't even have that beer anymore. Because I got to run right into something else, usually prepping for tournament stuff. Uh, I do a lot more writing in during the tournament. I've got some TV responsibilities the next day now, starting this year. So uh, the, the beer has to wait until after the final four now, unfortunately. <laughs> what about a bracket itself? Are you filling out your own bracket? And are people asking you, hey, Charlie you're predicting all the teams now help me predict my bracket so I can win this thing. Oh, absolutely. So I, <laughs> <laughs> last year, the guy I take tennis, the pro I take tennis lessons from Lo I love playing. I love tennis, love playing tennis. So I take lessons from this guy. He's like, you got to fill out my bracket for me for the women's. Sure. And he won. <laughs> oh yeah. That's That's I about. Oh, Charlie. And I didn't even get a free lesson. So <laughs> what the hell? He kind of owes no me tennis still. of them. Um, and, well, and here's a little yeah. bit too. So ESPN last year, uh, you know, obviously ESPN has taken a much broader role into the whole gambling world. So they they asked me and uh, Monica McNutt, I think, to do prediction, give give their best bets as as the tournament went along. And I did 
amazingly well. Uh, I think I was like nine and two and my like picking against the spread. So some of my friends started asking me like what during the tournament they, they get all excited about wanting to bet because now it's now the games mean more. And now, and now you can actually in the tournament here in Vegas, you can really only bet on the women's games during the tournament, which is, which stinks. I hope that changes, but um, I, I started feeding them a bunch of picks. I won them all a bunch of money. And I'm thinking, why wasn't I doing this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I didn't want to spend. I just, you know, I'm just this information guy. Now, this year I could be two and nine when I, if I do this again because it, it it can flip just as easily. But uh, I did I did do fairly well. So I do fill out a bracket. I do make picks of who's going to win game. I now make picks against the spread or over unders. Uh, and uh, and I have a lot of I have a lot of fun with that. Now I just got to profit from it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nice. Yes. If you could help me profit, I know where I'm coming to get my well, picks on the women's side. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a cut, Charlie. I'll give you a cut. I promise. But it's better than my tennis pro. That's that's for sure. Yes. Well, Charlie, we can't thank you enough for jumping here on the podcast and sharing a little bit more about your journey and then obviously diving into bracketology on the women's side. And we can't wait for March 12th. As they reveal the Sunday selection show, and we'll see how your bracketology fares out this season. We're excited. Oh, me, me too. But j- just you talking about it, I, my anxiety is already raised. <laughs> I better get my blood pressure checked right now. All right, Steffi. Well, we got our fill of bracketology there from Charlie Cream. <laughs> I mean, that guy, I know he takes a lot of pride in getting this right. And rightfully so. Yes. I mean, all the work that he puts into it, I don't know if people really understand just how involved he is and how much pride he does take into trying to get this bracketology right. And I know people can, you know, give him, you know, grief about not having one team here, you know, questioning that. But at the end of the day, he does do his homework. And I love that he was able to share some of the kind of, you know, pulling the curtain back to help us understand a little bit more as far as what goes into bracketology. I mean, tremendous insight. Um, We don't often get to hear the person sending out the bracketology updates, like the insight from behind the scenes it's crazy to me he doesn't crack a beer open until the final four. You'd think <laughs> after the selection show, he's got yes. a six-pack next to him. Like, damn, finally I can take a breath. Um, you know, that was that was really he's, – he's a great guy. I've gotten to know him the past few years, really open, really accessible, and he wants to grow the game. And ESPN has given him more of a platform to do that, and I think that that has been awesome because you see Lenardi everywhere on the men's side. And it's nice to see Charlie on the women's side. And those two, obviously familiar with each other, Rich, you know, working hand in hand, covering the men's side. So learning a little bit about the history of how we got into it um, was awesome, too. I love that. I love the connection that it was Joe Lenardi and him together. And then basically that Joe Lenardi is saying, yeah, I'm not the guy for the women's 
bracketology, but I've got the guy. And, <laughs> and Charlie was that guy and that they were able to now parlay that both into you know, different avenues. Uh, but his 20th year of doing bracketology and it's great having him here as a guest on our podcast. So uh, very thankful that Charlie was able to do that. And, and Steffi, the crazy thing is that we were talking about it before we started recording the season. Where'd it go? I mean, we're getting ready for March the 12th, the reveal selection Sunday, when we will know and all of that work that Charlie puts into bracketology uh, will be tested with the committee as they will reveal their 68 teams. And so we're right here winding down. And I know next week it's going to be just crazy for you as you'll be in Greenville. So I'm looking forward to that with the SEC Women's Tournament. And then it's just nonstop basketball. March Madness, we're here, Steffi. Yeah, um, favorite time of the year going into the spring. Spring is my favorite time of the year. Uh, the NCAA tournament, the men's and women's tournament is going to be absolutely fire. Um, I cannot wait for that. And just to see uh, what happens. Obviously, South Carolina being unbeaten. Do they stay unbeaten in Greenville last year? The buzzer beater. Um, we'll see. And I'm, I'm expecting obviously madness on the men's side for this next week, but Rich, it's already, it's almost over. I can't even believe it. We start the season off. And then before we know it, we're like, well, the tournament's here. What happened? How'd we get here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement, the sadness that it's going to be over, but we love college basketball. And as always, we thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. This is Automatic.